God, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to proclaim your word. God, just for myself, I, I want to right now recognize that, Lord, while I'm prepared, I and we are utterly dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, for moving. And so would you move now in our midst? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see things from your word? For, for, for each of us, would you just apply this text wherever it needs to land? And God, today I, I do pray, thinking about where we're going, would you today give us an amazing image and just help us to grasp your amazing grace today? But God, I pray the result of that would not only be that we receive it, but then we would become amazingly gracious people to the world around us. Is your name we pray. Amen. Well, over the summer, we have been walking through uh, the book of Titus verse by verse, and we really have this week and next week where we are wrapping up. And so I thought it'd be good to kind of catch us up since we did take a break last week from it and, and really bring us up to speed about what we've been looking at. Uh, there's a guy named the Apostle Paul. He is writing a letter to a young protege named Titus. He is on the island of Crete. I actually think we have a picture of Crete and some ruins there that we're going to put up on the screen. I occasionally like to do this because sometimes when I'm like reading the Bible with my kids or with others, it can kind of feel like I'm reading a storybook or a work of fiction. And I think it's helpful for us to remember these were real people writing to other real people in real places in history. So there was a real guy named the Apostle Paul. And if you don't know his story, at one point he had been a persecutor of Christians, hated Jesus, hated Christians, went around arresting them, having them put to death, even in some instances. Well, this guy named Paul has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus and his life is changed forever. And he goes around now telling other people about Jesus, including people on the island of Crete. And people come to faith on the island of Crete. And basically what he's doing now is writing to a young protege, Titus, who is on this island saying, hey, now come back and organize all these people who know Jesus into churches and remind them of the things that I've taught them. And, and throughout this letter, one of the big principles, one of the big things that Paul keeps hitting over and over again, and we're going to see it today in Titus 3, if you want to go ahead and be flipping there, is that we are saved by grace. We are saved from the penalty of our sin by grace, but, I really even say but because that counsels it, we are saved by grace and we are saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, the good things that we do or the lives that we lived, but we are saved for good works. Or as we put it a few weeks ago, Jesus' grace not only saves us, it also transforms us. That the moment we're saved, God had a dream in mind for you and for me of all that we would become, and it would be that we'd become more like Jesus, and we would live different lives. And in chapter two, which we really have been in since early August, a lot of the focus has been how are we supposed to live differently in the sphere of our relationships with each other as Christians, like within our families or within the church or maybe even with workplaces uh, with other Christians. Today in chapter three, it's going to shift and we're going to focus more on how are Christians to live differently within society and within our culture and within our world. And this is massive for us right now. Um, I don't know if you feel this way, but as I've looked at the culture and look at the world, it just feels like everything has flipped upside down in the last few years. And really, I'd say we've seen it kind of moving for the last 20 years plus, but especially the last few years, it feels like everything has changed. Um, it reminds me of the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz, where there's that scene and a tornado has come through and all of a sudden, Dorothy and little Toto find themselves in a very different place. And Dorothy says that classic line, paraphrasing a little, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. 
And I don't know about you, but like when I look out at culture, it feels like this tornado of change has come on and it doesn't feel like we're in Kansas anymore. Um, So many of the morals and values have changed in the past decade, in the past two decades. Things that were once used to be not so great are all of a sudden celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it with the culture, you're ostracized. The whole culture and the whole world is way more combative and contentious. Just like the last year as it felt like we were finally chilling out and everybody had had some time in the hot tub to kind of, not cool down, that's weird, but you know, like just chill out and, and simmer down a little bit. We have another election cycle coming up. Woohoo! Uh, and you can already like feel it. This week we had a debate, and I could like feel the temperature rising. It feels like on social media and in the world already. It's just become really combative. And then as a Christian, it's changed massively. Like, I mean, just even three and four decades ago, Christians were like the star varsity player on the team, and then we got demoted to the bench. And then we got demoted to the JV squad. And like at this point, we'd be happy just to be equipment managers. Like, right? It's like, because what it actually feels like is we're no longer on the team. We're like on the opposite opposing enemy team than our culture. Where because we don't share the beliefs and values and morals of our culture, we are now no longer like just tolerated. We are ostracized for it. And then this begins to beg the question, how are we as believers in Jesus supposed to function in that kind of a society, in that kind of a culture? And what's great is today in Titus 3 is Paul is going to lay out a vision for what it looks like. Because the people that Titus is, I mean, that Paul is writing to when he's commending Titus to tell these things to the believers on Crete, they live in a very similar culture to us. And in the, in the kind of the Roman world that this is situated in, when it comes to your beliefs about God, here is the Roman viewpoint. You can believe in any God you want to believe in. Any God, go for it. As long as you don't say your God is the only God. Because that's not acceptable. Sound familiar? When it comes to morals and values, hey, like, you know, you do, you do whatever you want to, Christians, as long as the things that we're doing, you are willing to affirm and celebrate too. And it'd actually be great if you occasionally join in with us. And then if Christians didn't join in, they were persecuted and ostracized and made fun of. Sound familiar? Um, Crete was known for being radically independent. Like they hated governmental authority. They hated any kind of authority structures being over them. And so they just resisted government at all costs. Sound familiar. So Paul, the people he's writing to are very similar situation to us. And Paul's going to lay out a vision for what it looks like to operate as Christians in that kind of world. And here's what I want to go ahead and tell you. This vision that we're going to see changed the world within a few hundred years. That at one point, the people like, that Paul is writing to are the social and cultural minority. Within a few hundred years, Christianity had transformed that Roman empire and turned it upside down. And I believe God can do the same today. If we'll adopt the vision, we'll see in Titus 3. With that in mind, let's go to Titus 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this week. We're actually going to repeat some of these verses next week when Rob is back preaching. But we're going to go ahead, go ahead and hit parts of them today as well. Let's all stand for the reading of God's word, if you don't mind. And let's get Paul's vision for how we are to operate within our world. We're going to start in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we dive into Titus 3, I actually think it'd be helpful to zoom out for a few minutes and maybe cover four broad approaches that Christians can and do often take to culture. And I think this will be helpful because as we walk through these, especially three of them, you'll see how they contrast with the last approach, which is the one that I think Paul really encourages us to live. So four broad approaches to culture. We'll have these on the screen in case you are taking notes. Um, One approach that some Christians take when it comes to their approach to the world and to culture is they become like the world. And I would say unhelpfully. Unhelpfully because it is hard to make a difference if you're not different. It's hard to make a difference if you're not different. Um, uh, Jesus in the Gospels gave this illustration of how he wanted Christians to operate um, in the world. He talked about us being salt and light. Um, got some salt up here, nice little fine sea salt for those who are fans of sea salt, like on their steak or whatever. I actually have some steaks up here. The idea of being salt in this culture was, yes, to enhance flavor. That's for sure what it did. But you have to remember that in this day, they did not have refrigeration. I'm going to use a, a napkin because I'm like, I don't want to touch meat and then like my hands be tainted the rest of the time I'm preaching up here now accidentally like get food poisoning or anything like that. So salt was really meant to be a preservative and to preserve um, meat so that it could be consumed safely. And, and that's the idea is Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to be different to make a difference. You were to be salt in the world to keep the world from decaying. The problem is, is if we become like the world, if we affirm what the world affirms, and if we adopt the same morals that the world lives, if we adopt the same beliefs that they do, we become ineffective. If we simply to try to be just like them, we end up being like meat on meat. And the problem is with this is that eventually we're both going to end up rotten. (laughs) Eventually, like not only are we not going to change the world, the world is going to continually change us and we both will end up rotten and ineffective. Now, a lot of people, a lot of churches, and even I'd say whole denominations have approached this, kind of taken this approach to the world where they have compromised on their beliefs, they've compromised on their values, they've compromised on the things that word of God explicitly teaches. And a lot of them have said, it's because, hey, if we will become like the world and we will, aff- and we will affirm the world in these areas, we'll be able, better able to reach the world. The problem with that is it never actually works. Like churches and even whole denominations that have compromised on their beliefs and the clear teachings of scripture have not grown. They actually have slowly shrunk and are on the verge of death, many of them. Whereas not all churches that then hold to the biblical teaching do this, but on the whole, the fastest and largest growing churches, robust church planning movements, denominations in the world are those who have kept to the Bible's vision of beliefs and of how we live in the world. It's those who said we're not going to become like the world who actually are most transforming the world. And and because they've realized that, like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, our call is not to become like the world, but instead, Paul says it so explicitly in Romans 12, I think we'll have it on the screen, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed. If we want to make a difference in the world, we have to be different. So that's one approach that people take, and it's not the faithful approach that Jesus calls us to take. 
Um, a second approach that people take is to, number two, isolate from the world fearfully. So um, instead of necessarily becoming like the world, these people let more say, like, we're kind of afraid of the world. The, the world has all these different beliefs and thoughts and actions, everything like that, and, oh, they're going to infect us. And so some people kind of take this approach. It's like, all right, let's get all the salt and just like kind of bring it way over here, and we'll just safely be apart from the world, and they can't corrupt us. The issue is, is that this is not the life Jesus calls us into. In John 17, we have going to have a couple verses on the screen. It says, Jesus is actually praying some of his final prayers for his followers. And he says, Lord, do not take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. And then he says, as you have sent me into the world, so now I am sending them into the world to be salt, to be people who have a transformative impact on the world. And you can't have a transformative impact on the world if you have no contact with the world. Now, some people, again, take more of the approach of like, oh, I'm going to be off on over here, and like, we're going to create our own Christian songs, our own Christian movies. We're going to create our own schools. We're going to do all of our own things apart. And listen, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. I don't want you to hear this morning that it is bad to listen to Christian music. It's bad to watch Christian movies. It's bad to have schools. Like, my family wrestled with the schooling issue even a year ago. I'm really more just trying to say is that if we begin to have this disposition towards isolating ourselves from the very people Jesus is sending us to, will have no impact, and we'll miss out on the mission Jesus has for us. So that's the second approach. Um, a third approach some people take to the world is they are hostile to the world. Um, they kind of take this approach. It's like, you stupid meat, why are you like meat? <laughs> why are you like meat? And then they're just like throwing it on there, and I'm like, instead of being salt, they're salty. Like, that's, for my millennials, you kind of get that reference of what being salty means. For the rest of you, I'm sorry, just flew over your head. Just stick with me. But it's like, they are just, I've seen in so many Christian circles, this increasing, like, anger and just sarcasm and, and, and a mocking attitude towards the world. I, I've actually seen some people make the argument that, hey, like, the whole strategy of being gracious and gentle and winsome is no longer effective. So, actually, now, we need to be bold and brash and even mean if it gets our point across to defend ourselves and to proclaim Christ. Like I've heard people argue this. And when I see people argue this, it's mainly on social media or online or Christian conferences. I really want to go up to them and say, okay, it's like, how's that working for you when you're actually sharing your faith with somebody? Like, not when it's online, not when it's at a conference, but when you are face-to-face -face with somebody, how is being hostile towards them working for you? My sense is either these people don't have much contact with non-Christians, or if they do, they don't speak like this. Because in my experience, I've never seen or heard of anyone mocked into a relationship with Jesus. Ever. I've never heard of someone being like just have them someone be hostile towards them and saying man this Jesus sounds awesome <laughs> like I need to, I need what you have anger I need more of that in my life like no one does this and in fact not only have I not seen this I actually my experience and what I've heard of has been the opposite I cannot think of anyone who's been mocked into a relationship with Jesus I know of plenty of people who've been mocked out of a relationship with Jesus um, one story that stuck out to me years ago that still just haunts me to this day. Uh, John Lennon, a member of the Beatles, 
one of the most influential musicians of all time. In 1965, he wrote the song Help. Instant hit, both the song and the album, just propelled the Beatles to like a whole new stratosphere of popularity. And as they're preparing actually to come over to the United States the next year to do a tour and a relationship with it, Lennon makes this comment of, oh, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. I think he was just kind of joking around, but Christians in America did not take so well to that, many of them at least. And so there was churches that began this movement of taking the Beatles' albums and burning them in public, including they would greet the Beatles at airports that they were landing in after traveling from the UK and burn the albums as a stand against everything the Beatles stood for because they had really awful lyrics in their songs, like, I want to hold your hand. <laughs> I'm just contrasting that with some of the stuff we hear on the radio today, and it's kind of comical now when we look back. So that was the welcome they gave them. A few years later, uh, John Lennon was giving an interview about different songs he had written, and he was asked about help. And John Lennon said, for everybody else, help was just the latest advance in rock and roll. But for me, it was the cry of my heart, and no one came with an answer. We missed the ball on that one. And my fear, and, I, and listen, I know that probably very few of you like, are like this, you're hostile to the world, but my fear for Christianity in America and the world right now is that we're going to miss the ball again. That really, so many of the shifts and changes in culture, people not, may not be singing the song Help, but really so much of what we're seeing is a culture crying out for help. They are confused, they're hurting, and they don't know where to turn, and so they're just turning to whatever makes sense to them. And they're crying out for help, and it is a hurting world. And my fear is, is that if we meet that hurting world who is crying out for help with hostility, we will repulse the very people that we are called to draw near with the love of Jesus. And that the only answer that their cries can be met with is Jesus. And yet we are going to repulse them away from Jesus if we meet them with hostility. You'll be like that alarm that's going off right now. <laughs> um, man, you were fast to ever turn that one off. Uh, no, seriously, that's, that's my fear. And that's not what God is calling us to. Here's what I've encouraged you with. Um, I want to start moving fast because I want to get into Titus 3 and the vision it lays out. But I think, like, here's what I want you to know. That, like, I don't want you to think, oh, like, you can't be upset about stuff. Like, listen, no, there is space to look at culture and the way it's going and to lament. Like, there is space to even feel some righteous indignation. I, to me, the, the, Paul not only models it in Titus 3, but in the book of Acts. He goes into Athens, um, a very pagan culture. And I'm, I think we'll have it up on the screen for you, Sue. I'm not going to, like, quote it verbatim, but you'll kind of see it up there behind me. He goes into the book, uh, in the book of Acts, a city called Athens. ton of idolatry everywhere. And it says that his spirit is provoked within him. That actually, like, in the original language, he was angry. So like he sees the culture and he's like angry about it because he's like, this is dishonoring God. But it doesn't then say, so he went and held up a picket sign and said, you bunch of idiots. How could you be doing this? No, it says, so he did what he went in and reasoned with them. And then later, I'm not going to have it on the screen, like in his sermon, when he's speaking to these pagans, he builds bridges with them and he quotes poets that they would know. He's trying to build a bridge to proclaim the gospel. And yes, he eventually actually hits the idea of the coming judgment of God, but he builds a bridge to them first. So he, yes, brings truth, but he does, when his disturbance, when he looks at culture, he says, no, I'm not going to come with anger and hostility. I'm going to come with the gospel. 
and he brings it winsomely. That's the approach we need. And that leads us to the fourth approach. So we'll put this up here on the screen. Instead of becoming like the world, instead of isolating from the world, instead of being hostile to the world, I think what we're called to be as Christians, the approach we're called to take is to engage with the world graciously. So we're not becoming like the world. We're not isolating from the world. We're called to engage with the world, but we're not called to do it by just dumping our salt and being salty and angry. We're called to be gracious and kind people. And that's what we're going to see in this text. With that being said, let's actually dive into this passage and just hit some details of what Paul lays out in terms of what it looks like to graciously engage with the world. Verse 1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. I mentioned earlier that the people in Crete had this reputation for being fiercely independent and they never wanted to submit to the government. So yes, Paul here is, in a sense, repeating teachings he said in other places, like in Romans 13, where he commended there for people to be submissive to governing authorities. And the reason is, is that God has appointed those authorities. But I think what Paul is getting at here is more than just saying, hey, be submissive. I think what he's saying is, hey, I know the rest of your culture kind of just sticks it to the government, says, we're going to do our own thing. We don't care about you. Paul is saying, hey, I want you to be different. I want you to have an attitude of submissiveness and obedience to the governing authorities in Crete. Because again, I want you to be different so that you can make a difference. Now, right here, um, I've just learned over time, a ton of people want to raise their hands and say, well, what about like when the government tells us to do something that's sinful? What do we do then? I want to hit this briefly. Three things. Okay, I just want to say this. Number one, in America, not the rest of the world, but in America, let's just say this out loud. That only applies, maybe in all of American history, less than 0.1% of the time. Okay, so let's just say, let's just say that it maybe applies less than 0.1% of the time where that's an issue. Number two, increasingly the last few years, people have said, well, it violates my conscience. What my experience is when I've talked to a lot of these people is that translated means I don't like it. I don't like that mandate. I don't like that law. I don't like those taxes. For the record, I don't either, by the way, in the land of taxes when I get it. But here's the thing. Conscience does not mean you don't like it. Because actually, I would say the test of your submission only really starts when you don't like something that you have to submit to. Okay. Conscience, biblically, according to Romans, really, if you want to look at it more in depth later today, Romans 14 and 15, conscience is either when, number one, it explicitly contradicts something in Scripture, or number two, it's a gray area of Scripture, and the way you interpret it makes you think that if I do this, I'm going to be sinning by the way you interpret that piece of Scripture. Okay. Finally, number three, and this is, I really should have just led with this because this is all that needs to be said, but what does it say about us? that we start with this question. That when we read this passage, instinctively many of us say, well, but what about the 0.1% of the time where we don't have to obey? What does it say that we want to start with that instead of the 99.9% of the time where it is biblical for us to obey and it honors the authorities that we obey and it shows them that Jesus makes a difference in our lives because we obey? It may just reveal our hearts. So Paul says, listen, I want you to be different in this culture. Even though your culture is kind of stiff-arming government, I want you to be submissive because I want you to show that Jesus is transforming your lives and that Jesus makes a difference. 
But he goes on and he says, not only do I want you to be submissive, I want you to what? Be ready for every good work. Paul's vision of Christians in society is not that we'd be on the front lines of society and of culture picketing, but we'd be on the front lines of society and culture saying, how can we help? What good can we do here? Like Christians and the church is at her best, not when we're pointing fingers, but when we're shouldering burdens and we're solving problems. And what's amazing, by the way, if you don't like know this, the church and Christians have a long history of this in the world. Like majority of the hospitals in the United States started by Christians. And we're at first Christian hospitals. Majority of the universities were started as Christian universities. Christians were on the front lines of ending slavery in different parts of the world. Christians, unfortunately, some were on the front lines of opposing it, but others were on the front lines of actually saying, we're going to put slavery to an end. Christians were on the front lines of the civil rights movement. Christians have been on the front lines of so much good. And that's when we're at our best. It's not when we're saying to culture, look at all you idiots. How can you do all this? But instead, how? How can we help? Where do you need us? In the first 200 years, this is actually so much of how this culture was changed. Romans, when the people would get sick during a plague, would throw their sick into the street. Say, well, go die on your own. We don't want to get sick too. You know what Christians did? They went into the streets and brought them in and took care of them. If a baby wasn't wanted, Romans would throw them into the street to be died from exposure. Christians would come, not even knowing if the baby was theirs or who they were, would pick him up and take care of him. Christians got this reputation to be on the front lines of taking care of the world, even if the world hated them. And it slowly changed the world. This is when we're at our best. This is what we want to be known for. So Paul starts with more just our approach to society in general, and maybe it's a governing authorities, but then in verse 2, he goes on to our approach to all people. Verse two, I want you to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. And so for some who think that winsomeness and graciousness is a strategy we can no longer employ because it's not working, my counter argument would be like graciousness and gentleness isn't a strategy we employ, it's a command we obey. Like being gracious and gentle with people in culture is not a strategy to try to get them to like us. It's just a command we obey because Jesus modeled it for us. Jesus engaged with the world graciously and gently, so we do the same. Now, what do you mean all people? Do you mean like all people? Like what if they're Democrats? Some people just got really nervous. <laughs> I did a really in-depth study of the word all. It's a very nuanced, complicated word in the original Greek. That means all. <laughs> so yeah, even if they're Democrats, but like what if they have the audacity to be Republicans? All people, all, no exceptions. Okay, but like what if they're a part of the LGBTQ plus community? All people. Well, yeah, but like, what if when we're gracious towards them, they're not gracious back? Like, what if they mock us? All people? Paul's saying, listen, like, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what their attitude towards you is. Jesus has called us to be a transforming different people. And when we live our transforming lives in other people, it shows them that Jesus makes a difference. 
Um, I, I thought about this last week, you know, this idea there's in this, in this um, passage, there's this idea of good works. We're not saved by good works, but I will say this. The watching world is wondering, does this work? Like, does Jesus make a difference? And when we live this kind of life in front of people and treat all people with gentleness and courtesy, even if the world doesn't agree with us, they'll see, hey, something's different. And I, I actually loved um, this story that I found um, recently. There was um, a member of parliament in the UK, and a few years ago, he gave this speech, and his name was Roy Hattersley. He was the former deputy leader of the Labour Party in the UK. Outspoken atheist. Outspoken atheist. But, but listen to what he says. The arguments against religion are well-known and persuasive. Yet men and women who believe are the people most likely to take the risk and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works, the Christian John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity, their word for love, go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and miracles don't go out to the Salvation Army each night. And what Roy Hattersley, who was an atheist, was saying was, there's something different, even if I don't agree with it. I can't deny there's something different. And these are the lives God has called us to live. But can I just say this for us right now? This is hard. <laughs> and it's hard in a culture where you are mocked for what you believed. And when you're ostracized, when you're made fun of for the things that we hold dear and the things that we believe are true, it's hard to respond graciously to all people. So, so it's like, how do we do that? Like, what's the secret sauce? What's the secret power to help us do that? Paul is now going to get to that in verse 3. And I'm just going to tell you, it's going to feel kind of like a little bit of a rabbit trail, but like, this is the secret to how we can become the kind of people that Paul was describing in verses 1 through 2. And I'll just so go ahead and say it like this. It's by reminding ourselves of the gospel. If we want to go forward in our engagement graciously with culture, we have to go back to the gospel first. So what I want to do for a few minutes, just follow me, because again, it's going to feel like a rabbit, rabbit trail, but I promise it's not. It has huge implications. I want us just to dive into the gospel that Paul lays out, starting in verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I think we actually have it here on the screen highlighted because what you're going to see is a contrast. Right here, Paul says, here is everything that, did you catch that? We ourselves once were. So Paul is including himself in that. He says, hey, if you're a believer in Jesus, all of us were at one time foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, passing our days and malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. If you're in here and maybe you like grew up in church or came to faith at a young age, you're like, I never was like that. You may not have been in practice, but you were in potential. Uh, I remember listening to this uh, testimony from a guy who once said, Jesus saved me from a life of drugs and alcohol and hatred and murder and all these other things at the age of six. <laughs> and his point was, I could have been all those things, but Jesus saved me young. Okay, so listen, this is what all of us once were. But here's the great news, is there's this beautiful, powerful little word that comes next. We'll have it on the screen for you. But. 
But uh, when you put it in a sentence, and this is why I actually corrected myself earlier in the sermon. If you remember, I didn't say but for a second. I was like, hey, let me change that to and. Because but cancels out everything that came before it. So like, for example, the Seahawks have the ball on the goal line. It's third and two and short. They have beast mode there. Hand the ball off, win the Super Bowl. But <laughs> they pass the ball into the end zone and it's intercepted. Too soon still, like Seahawks fans? That's still a little too soon? It's been like a decade now, but I was like, maybe, because some of your like, reactions are like, oh, Paul, that, that's stung. That hurts too much, man. I need some counseling after this sermon's over. Uh, no, like, but it cancels it out. Or like, let's be more positive, because Paul is using some more positive term. You are diagnosed with cancer. Bad. But it's easily treatable. You're in a plane that is going down and crashes. But everyone survives. So no matter how bad it is in the first part, the but cancels out anything that goes before. So Paul puts up this vivid description of everything we were apart from Christ, but cancels it out. And now Paul's going to trust everything we were with what Christ did and what God did for us. And we're going to have that on the screen and it's going to be highlighted for you as I'm reading. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So everything we were apart from Christ, but Jesus showed us mercy anyways and treated us better than we deserved. And it says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and in the book of Ephesians in chapter two, it says that all of us are dead in sin. Your problem and our, my problem is not that we were bad people, it's that we were dead people. And regeneration literally means that we are born again, that Jesus gave us new life. And he goes on, he says, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, that simply means you are declared righteous in God's eyes. We are justified by what? His grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So everything that was bad about us in an instant when we place our faith in Jesus is undone, but not because of anything we've done, but everything that God did for us. That's the gospel. Okay, now you're like, okay, but like, what does this have to do with living lives of graciousness? I want to like, walk through really two huge implications for you um, on the screen. Number one, the gospel keeps us humble. When we realize everything that we were, and then we see that the only reason we're saved is because of everything God did, we don't walk with a strut in culture. <laughs> we walk with a limp. Like, there is no place for arrogance in our demeanor towards the world. There's only a place for graciousness because when we see the amazing grace that Jesus gave us, it should move us towards amazing graciousness to people who don't know him. That's what it does in us. Like, let me just put it this way bluntly. When I see that the only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that makes it necessary, there's no room for arrogance. So the gospel keeps me humble in my relationship with culture. But the second thing it does is, is it keeps me and it keeps you on mission. Remember, Paul is writing this. And as I said earlier in the sermon, like Paul was a persecutor of Christians, hated Jesus, hated Christians. He was once everything that he described, he hated and he was hated by others. He was hostile. He was all those things. But then Jesus appeared. But then here's what happened is then Paul was so moved by Jesus's grace towards him that he began moving towards others and engaging with others, graciously sharing the gospel with them. And why? Because here's what he realized. Paul realized this, 
These people need what I needed. And what Paul needed and what I needed and what you needed when we were apart from Christ, we did not need people to become like us. We did not need people to isolate themselves from us. We definitely did not need people to come up to us with a mocking attitude. What we needed was people to approach us with grace and love and winsomeness and share the gospel. And so when I go back to the gospel, I'm reminded I need to be humble. That it's not because of who I am that saved me. It's only by Jesus and what he did. But then also it reminds me, I need to share this with other people. Because when I was like this apart from Jesus, I want to give now people who are apart from Jesus what I needed most. And that's the gospel. It keeps us on mission. Um, earlier I shared a story of how we really blew it 60 years ago with uh, John Lennon. I want to share a, a, a positive story recently of how someone I think really nailed it and nailed this. Um, we've shared the story before, but it's just so perfect right now. I'm going to share it again. There's a woman whose name is Rosaria Butterfield, um, author, speaker. And um, a few years back, she was actually known for being outspokenly atheist. Like she would write articles against Christians. She was a part of the LGBTQ movement, like just actively hated Jesus and hated Christians. Um, she actually wrote an article um, making fun of and mocking a certain sector of a religious movement. And in the weeks that followed, she had two piles on her desk of papers. Um, one was a stack of all the support that she got. Um, on another was a stack of all really hostile, angry, mocking letters she got from Christians. So just stacking them up. Well, all of a sudden she receives this letter from a pastor and she doesn't know which stack to put it in. Because he disagreed with her and he challenged her on a few of her assumptions, but he had a very gracious tone and he invited her over to dinner. The hey, I would love to talk with you more about this. She didn't respond at first because she thought maybe, maybe it's a trap, you know, kind of a thing. But eventually she responds and so she goes over to the pastor's home and she thinks she's going to be like ambushed and that they're going to like mock her, yell at her, make fun of her for her beliefs. Or maybe they're just going to share the gospel with her right away. And she, she goes in a little bit defensive, but they have a meal and it's just a great cordial conversation. And they eventually begin to talk about the article and she just finds them to be very sharp. They asked good questions. They didn't assume things, but they asked her questions. But then like they gave her some very gracious responses and things to chew on to think about. They never like cornered her and tried to trick her into like accepting Jesus right away. They just had a good conversation about it. And that was it. Rosaria didn't know what to do with that. She was like, wow, it just blew me away. So over the next couple of years, they continue to invite her back for dinner and she comes back and comes back and they develop a relationship and share slowly but surely the graciousness of Jesus with her. Rosaria eventually becomes a Christian. And now, instead of writing books against Jesus, she writes books about her faith and her love for Jesus and to help others. Because in part of the graciousness of people who didn't isolate themselves from Rosaria, who weren't hostile towards her, but just graciously engaged her with the love of Jesus, patiently, it changed your life. And here's what I'm going to tell you. What, like, it's really more of a question. What if we all did that? Like, what, what if we all did that? Not just all of us in here at Redeemer, but like all like Christians in America. Like, what if that was our approach? Here, here's what I believe. I really believe it would change the world again. Like I, I said earlier, this changed the world over two or 300 years. So listen, I don't want us to think it's going to be overnight. In fact, I read this book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church a few years back, and the, the basic thesis of it is that it didn't happen overnight. 
Instead, it happened slowly but surely as Christians just patiently and graciously engaged with their culture. The culture slowly changed. And the the writer said this, and this has just stuck with me. He said, in the first two centuries of the church, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christians. The best witness we have as the church is not our programs, but our transformed lives and patient, gracious witness. Ah, if we will all live this way, by the grace of God, I believe not only will we be transformed, but we will see the world transformed. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for the gospel. Um, I want to thank you that the picture we saw on the screen of everything we were, we, we, apart from you, but you did not let us stay that way. That Jesus, you came into this world on a mission because you love the world. When you see the world in all of its rebellion and all of its foolishness, your heart is love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus, your heart is love when you look at the world. And so God, would you stir our hearts by the gospel, by how you have been gracious to us to now be gracious to others. Would your amazing grace transform us to being amazingly gracious people? And God, would you now help us to go into a world who, yes, is going to mock us, is going to ostracize us, is going to even occasionally persecute us in different ways. Will you just help us to have amazing graciousness towards them? To be gentle, to be courteous, to be kind, and to bring the gospel patiently but faithfully. Believing that you can change any person's life because you changed ours. Would you do that individually? And then would you do that in our culture slowly but surely as we're salt and light in this world? Amen.